You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading comes from James 1, 1 through 4. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is our launch Sunday, which we are completely blown away by. So we're now in two gatherings. We've moved from one at 10 to one at 9 and 11 because we were technically at capacity last week, which was not expected for a pre-launch season uh, for a new church plant in the middle of COVID. It's craziness, but God is faithful. Just this week, I've, I've had a few meetings with people and getting to hear prayers that have been going up for years that it feels like the Lord has raised us up to be an answer to And I've been blown away just thinking of the prayers that we've been praying for this city and knowing that if God's been faithful to these prayers, he'll be faithful to ours as well. And so we're we're witnessing evidence of God's grace here. So I'm encouraged by you. We we are planting praxis because in Kelowna, there is 100,000 people who do not yet know Jesus. Additionally, there's 100,000 people who claim to be followers of Christ who are disconnected from the local church, and we believe the Christian life is impossible to live out disconnected from the body. Christianity isn't just a belief. It's actually something that's meant to be practiced and and that's meant to transform our lives. Um, On your way in, a show of hands, does anyone not have a James book? Somebody hold one up. Anyone not have one of these books yet? Anyone not? Okay, you all got one? Good. We are very excited about these books. This is um, kind of a sermon series, supplemental reading. It's it's a bunch of things. So it'll have some some other reading that will hopefully help unpack where we are in the text. A kind of a reading guide throughout the week that will set you up for what's coming in the following week. It's got some really good application questions and, and space for notes as well. And then you can keep it all together. I've had these in the past, I love them, I still have them on my shelf, and I still go back to them. So we're trying to resource you because our heart in planting praxis is not to be an entertaining place. We want to be a place where you can be discipled to maturity. Our our heart here is to call people forward in faith, disciple them to maturity, and then activate them to the mission that God's made them for. We all have good works that God's prepared, and so our, our whole heartbeat here is we want to disciple you. We want this to be a place where you're challenged that honestly, I want this to be a place that's uncomfortable, where you can't just show up and kind of glide through, because we've all been in churches like that. You can get, show up, warm the pew, and you know, the church scene in Kelowna, like everywhere else, it's really easy to do this. It's easy to be an inch deep and four miles wide. We want to do more than, in, you will not grow to maturity just showing up on Sunday and sitting in a pew. We need to be challenged. We need to engage more. So we've sort of disrupted the regular church rhythms. We, are, we, we gather here on Sundays, but that's only a fraction of what Praxis is and what it's going to be. We're now scattering throughout the week into community groups. Life, we need to gather. The gathering should not be forsaken, and we won't. This is going to continue to happen. But we need to scatter throughout the week into community as well. So community group leaders here, would you stand up for a quick second? 
We now have six different community groups launching this fall or next week. Registration is live. Um, we really believe that it's vital for your Christian walk to be engaged with community throughout the week. So um, six different groups gathering on different nights, different parts of the city, and, and this is all ages, all kind of like just living life out together. I have grown immensely having older people in my community group who are done raising their kids. I, I loved being a new parent coming into community group where people had kids. There's young adults, there's old, there's rich, there's poor, there's every ethnicity. I love it. You need to be in community group too. You guys can have a seat. Thanks. Um, anyway, that registration's live. And then as well, we're going to have discipleship classes starting right away. All this information's up on the web. All this to say we're very excited to launch. If you haven't yet, grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of James. While you do that, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, your gracious kindness towards us, for the gathered people of God, for what you're up to in the middle of a global pandemic, for the lives we're seeing come to you, the, the people who've come forward for, um, to be baptized. This is all testimony of the fact that you are drawing people to yourself. Your word is not going out and returning void to you. You're hearing prayer and you're answering so we come before you knowing that you are the great God of the universe who is also imminently close, who hears our prayers, who inhabits the praises of your people. And we pray that your word be ignited this morning as we open it. We would be challenged, we would be grown, and that you would do your work, Holy Spirit, in conforming us to the image of Christ. We're dependent on you for this. So we pray for, just as you've inhabited the praise, you would ignite the word. Pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Because we are just beginning a new series, um, I want to begin with a bit of a 10,000-foot view of this book. Then we'll get down and we'll get into the, the nitty-gritty of it. James is um, a fantastic book. Fantastic book. But before we can talk about James the book, we need to understand a little bit about James the author. So James 1, verse 1, the author says this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's several different Jameses in the New Testaments, probably three or so. Um, this, this James here is um, the half-brother of Jesus, James. Sometimes referred to as James the Just. James the Just was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter left because of um, the, the persecution, because basically Herod Agrippa was trying to kill him. And so from that time forward, James became the leader. He presided over the church in Jerusalem. But what's really interesting is that there is no indication that James, the half-brother of Jesus, followed Jesus at all during his earthly lifetime. The only thing we know about James is actually that him and the other half-brothers of Jesus during the lifetime actually tried to stop Jesus because they thought he was a lunatic. They're kind of looking at him going, you know, okay, Jesus, enough with the magic tricks. I grew up with you. I grew up in Egypt with you. I've eaten dinner with you. Jesus, I share a bunk bed with you. When, when Jesus was alive, James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So what changed? What changed? Men, show of hands if you have a brother. So 
some men with brothers. Ever get your brother to call you uncle? Keep your hand up. A couple of you. Ever get him to, like, call you hit your master? No? Anyone get your brother to call you God? No good. You'd be a blasphemer, so don't put your hand up. I don't care how persuasive you are. You're not getting your brother to call you the creator of the universe. Listen to James, though. James, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Some commentators say that this could be translated this way. James, the servant of Jesus, who is Lord and God. This is what Jesus called himself when he was alive. Called himself Lord, called himself God. He said, before Abraham was, I existed. He actually used um, the, the great name of God, Yahweh. He said, I am when Philip asked to see the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He forgave people their sins, something that only God could do. John 10, he claims to be one with the Father and then they stone him because they're saying you're blaspheming, which he would have been if he wasn't God. He stood before the high priest at the end of his life and said he's the one who would judge the people at the end of time. Jesus claimed to be God. And while he was alive, his brothers did not believe us. They, they thought he was four cents short of a nickel. So what changed? How did James go from doubting Jesus to being one of the principal defenders of the faith in the first century church? I mean, James, his family, they saw Jesus crucified. They saw him get nailed to a tree they saw him stop breathing. They saw a spear get rammed in his side till blood came out and stopped flowing. They saw him get taken down completely lifeless, put in a tomb and a rock put in front of it. How did, how did they come to believe something different? Because, I mean, if you're, if you're his brothers at that time standing there watching this, you're going, okay, gigs up. Gigs up, Jesus. I told you you weren't God. But then something happened. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 this way. He says, I delivered to you, his audience in Corinth, as of first importance what I received. Christ died. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. You want to you go validate this? Go find these guys. They're still alive. Then he appeared to James. They saw Jesus dead. But then they saw him alive again. You can imagine like James opening the door and there's Jesus and he's like, I told you I'm God. Talk about freaking you out though, right? Like think about that. That would scare the shedazzle out of you. James was so confident that he did see Jesus alive that he became a great evangelist, teacher, preacher, pastor. As did actually Jesus' other brother, Judas. He went on to this as well. He actually wrote in the New Testament as well. He was so confident that Jesus was Lord that he, he willingly died rather than deny this. To the authorities at this time, they took him to the top of the temple, said renounce. He wouldn't, so they pushed him off. He fell, broke all his bones, he's laying on the ground. 
They came and said, hey, renounce. He said, I won't. So they smashed his head in with a rock. This verse might seem small and inconsequential. This is actually a massive theological nugget. There is lots here. James calls his brother God, and he stands to gain nothing. In fact, he, the only thing he gained was his own death. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I'd encourage you to ponder that. What would compel someone to give their life? Perhaps there's more to this than just this story. After James claims to have seen his brother come back from life, after Peter left Jerusalem, um, James became the leader of the church. This was the, the biggest church. This was the, kind of the chief church in the first century. Now, perhaps because of his own history of disbelief, history records James had great compassion on the Jewish people. Great compassion. So he didn't take off when everyone else was fleeing because of persecution. He stayed put, continued to preach the gospel to the Jews, and would pray for them to the point where historians record his knees were like camel's knees. They were so thick because he would labor in prayer. It's a bit about James. Now, a bit about the audience he's writing this to. Um, the early Christians began to come under great persecution and they scattered. They were leaving Jerusalem in, in great numbers, scattering around the world. As well, the disciples, as they dispersed, were were sharing the gospel, evangelizing, and churches were coming to be all around the known world. And so James says, James, a servant of God, verse 1, and of the Lord Jesus, and then he describes his audience, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Now, if you've, if you've read the Old Testament, you know, he's using, he's borrowing some language that was revered, um, reserved for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now he's saying, hey, church in Ephesus, church wherever, way over there in Podunkville, Jews who've left Israel, he's describing them all as the same, the people of God. If you're here, you're part of the 12 tribes of the dispersion. We're dispersed. We're the people of God dispersed around the world. He's writing this letter to a church that had spread out everywhere. And as they left some of the areas of persecution due to the persecution, they'd come to spots where it would let up. You're no longer being hunted. And, and the Christians at this time were kind of at risk of just being usurped into the culture, getting comfortable, forgetting the mission, you know, buying and selling, starting jobs, starting businesses, buying houses, selling houses, raising kids, the things of life. They get into them, and they're at risk of forgetting the gospel. The Jewish country club, the temple, gets knocked down, and... and they're wondering, hey, how do I live this out? That's who James is writing to. That's, that's why he's writing to them. And it's very fitting for us as well, because we live in Kelowna. Kelowna is like the most comfortable place around. It's the beach resort town everyone wants to live in in Canada. The chief idol of this place is comfort. We idolize the same things. Family, starting businesses, jobs, this, that. And many of us, we've grown disenfranchised with country club Christianity as well. You know, show up on Sunday, cheap veneered smile, shake hands, oh, great, we're great. Smile, kids. 
This is what James is about. Unpacking the gospel in a way that transforms us. If you're hungry for something more than just warming a pew on Sunday, James is gold. James, the book itself is essentially on the kind of condensed teachings of James. It's like, it's like a tall can of Red Bull, 12 coffees in one. There is tons here. It's super compact, super dense, and so we need to sip it slowly. If you've read through the New Testament, you know James reads a bit different than other books too. Some people have called this the Proverbs of the New Testament because it seems like it's a bunch of sound bites. It's very much connected, very much connected. And when we understand how it works, it actually becomes a little easier. I'm about to get into the text a little bit better here in a sec, but just so that we understand this overview, the bulk of James consists in chapters two to five. There we find about 12 of James's kind of best sermons condensed down. Chapter one, where we're going to spend a few weeks, it opens up and he just tells them what he's going to tell them. He, he, he's setting the stage. He actually uses a lot of the same language that's going to come up through the rest of the book. Uh, one is great. It, the meat of this is really in chapters two to five. Now, with that said, uh, one is not devoid of great theological truths. And so, take a look at verse two with me. After introducing himself, addressing his audience, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The NIV, I'm reading from the ESV, um, but if you're reading the NIV, it says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. The Amplified Version, consider trials nothing but joy. Other translations, consider yourself fortunate when you encounter trials. Another says, be very happy when you're tested in different ways. And the original language, this word trial, it, uh, it communicates the idea of an unwelcome, unanticipated experience. The same word used for trial here is used to describe, um, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? When the people came and hijacked him and beat him up and left him by the road, that experience is that same word, trial. It's actually the same root where we get the word pirate, which is cool. Trials are like pirates that attack you. Unwelcomed, unanticipated. And James says to count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials. And I love that he says various kinds. Because if you're like me, I'm like, does he mean sickness? Yes, various kinds. That falls under there. I'm going through marital problems. Yes, that counts. I've got a child who's a hoodlum. Yes, various kinds of trials. My car broke down. I need a new engine. Yes, various kinds of trials. There's not a new season of Bosch on Amazon Prime. No. My friends and family are divided around how we should handle COVID. Yes, I've got cancer. Yes, I lost my job. Yes, my spouse cheated on me. Yes, I'm working from home and my kids drive me crazy. Yes, we all will face trials. You're probably in one now, but we're all going to face them. And when we do, James says, count it all joy. Now, we're going to get into how that's possible. We're going to get into 
why we, we can have joy in the middle of our trial, but first we need to see where trials come from. It's important. It's, it's actually really foundational. First place, we know that trials come from a source of trials. Christians love to blame this guy. Satan. Matthew 4, um, Jesus gets led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, which is noteworthy, to be tempted for a trial. Satan comes to him and he says, satisfy your hunger, turn those rocks into bread. Hey, call in the angel army right now, have them do your will. Worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. He's he's trying to get him to, to, he's tempting him. There's a trial there, but we also see throughout the New Testament, Satan's not only tempting Jesus, he tempts the people of God as well. He's described as the tempter. He's described in 1 Peter as someone coming to seek to devour. Ephesians 4 tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger so that we wouldn't give a foothold for Satan. Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. 2 Timothy 2 uh, describes some as being taken captive by Satan. Some trials are tactical warfare aimed at the people of God, and the source of them is Satan and his minions. Some Christians completely fail to acknowledge this because we've bought into the materialist worldview that all we are is like time and chance happening upon matter, and there's no spiritual realm. That does not syncopate with what the Bible teaches us. It says there's, there's principalities, there's powers, there's spiritual things going on that we need to acknowledge. Some are way too prone to this, though, too. I mean, I've grown up in very charismatic circles, and everything was Satan. Satan gave me a flat tire. No, he didn't. You suck at driving, and you hit the curb. I, I used to, I loved this excuse growing up. Everything, my mom, I, Satan made me do it, mom. Um, but in reality, it was my own corrupt heart and cheeky attitude. Second source of our trials Satan, but self. Now, you might be asking, hey, how can I pirate hijack myself? How can I trial myself? I'm going to dip into Colin. Colin's not here, so he can't stop me. Um, Colin's sermon in a couple weeks. James 1, verse 13, it says this. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. James 4, verse 1, if you flip to the right, says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Some of us overestimate Satan while radically underestimating the brokenness of ourselves. Some trials we we encounter, they come as a direct result of our brokenness. Some of us... We're far more sinful than we realize, and God loves to show us this. Solomon agrees. Ecclesiastes up on the screen, he said, Indeed, there's no one on earth who's righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. First John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. David said, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. Elsewhere, Psalm 58, David says, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb people are wayward, spreading lies. 
we have a, a very, 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 very real external enemy, but we have a very real internal enemy as well. And if we want to grow up in our faith, we need to see that more often than not, we are the antagonists in our own story. Trial comes by way of Satan, self, and thirdly, sin. Um, the scriptures record that humans um, were created, and the world was created good. God called it good, but Genesis 3 records sin broke into the world through Adam and Eve, and it had a cascading effect, a domino effect that spread across all of the world. So Romans 5.1 says, sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people. It's passed down like genetics to everyone. We're all sinful. But Isaiah 51 says it's not only mankind that was affected by this, it actually cascaded through creation as well. Isaiah 51 says the earth now is wearing out like an old garment. Sin's breaking it down. Trials we face might be from Satan, might come from our own broken desires and sinful hearts. They might be the result, though, just of the fact that we live in a broken creation. Cancer, viruses, hips wearing out, bodily deformities, none of these things were the, the, the plan of God. None of these are part of God's original design. These are the effects of sin cascading down. Temptation in trial. The temptation might come from Satan. It might come from sin. It might come from ourselves. but we need to see there's one place it never comes from. I've already read it, but I'll go back. James 1.13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. Many skeptics, I think, have a really hard time with this concept. Many skeptics, I know, have a really hard time with this concept because I've had a lot of combos talk to people and they'll say, how can there be a good God if there's evil in the world? How can there be a good God in cancer? I, my favorite response to this is, like, how does there not being a God make that any better? How does God not existing make evil any easier to deal with? When you keep evil but you get rid of God, you get rid of any hope of there being a purpose. You just surrender yourselves over to fate. If you're a Christian, we need to see trials are not God punishing us. I gotta say that again because it's very important. If we're Christians, trials are not God punishing us. He's already punished Jesus for our sin. There's no more left for you and me. He can't punish us and punish Jesus in the same way a judge can't send two people to jail for the same crime. Trials aren't God punishing us for our sin. Like we need to like work something off in order to get back in his good graces and eventually get the blessings. Which is how I understood the gospel for a long time. Every time I was suffering, well I must have done something. I just better keep up my cheery demeanor and keep... Keep plowing this way and eventually I'll work it off and all the blessings are going to come. God isn't punishing us for sin that Jesus already paid for. You know, but he might be disciplining us. He says that we're illegitimate children if God doesn't discipline us. He doesn't take away necessarily some of the immediate ramifications or consequences because he actually wants to train us through it. 
Likewise, trials are opportunities. They're things that God's allowed in order to train us through as well. The temptation in trial is not from God, but the allowance of trial is. Hear that. The temptation in trial is not from God, but the allowance of trial is. That's important because some of us have been fleeing and shrinking back and running from trial. Things that God has allowed to grow us. Sometimes we're just so focused on what we're going through that we miss why we might be going through it. If God, I think this has helped me in trial, if God is all-knowing, he knew this was going to happen. And if he's all-powerful, he could have stopped it. So then what might he be actually trying to accomplish in it? The temptation in trial is not from God but the allowance of trial is. If you're looking for a great story to read, maybe this afternoon, sometime this week, the back third of the book of Genesis is all about this guy named Joseph. Joseph has got some jacked up brothers who throw him in a pit because they're jealous. And then they uh, drag him out of the pit and sell him to slave traders. Slave traders carry him away to a distant land. He ends up a slave in someone's house. The slave master's wife gets the hots for him. He runs away to, to not grieve God, falsely accused, thrown in just a terrible thing after terrible thing. Eventually, he ends up, it's a good story, go read it, second in command in Egypt. And one day, his brothers come to him, and, and the story concludes, and the book of Genesis concludes in um, Genesis 50, verse 20. He says this to his brothers, as for you, what you intended against me for evil his brothers very much intended evil against him. He says it's God intended for good in order to accomplish a day like this, to preserve the lives of many people. God allowed it. What others intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, you've probably heard the Michael W. Smith song, Sovereign Over Us. You know, even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. I love the song, but that line is garbage. This is not what Genesis says. It's not like God's standing there, oh, shucks, here comes the enemy with his tactics. I'll turn it. I'll, I'll bend it. I, good thing I thwarted that. No, that's not how God's described in the Bible. In order for Satan to come sift Peter like wheat, he had to ask permission. Before he could do anything to Job, he had to ask permission. He allowed it. Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended. He meant it. Some of us are wasting trials because our understanding of who God is is very miscued. Perhaps, maybe one of the things that God is using trial in our lives for is to enlarge and challenge our small vision of who he is so that we get a proper picture of his outlandish greatness, his, his absolute power, his meticulous sovereignty. We, who we understand God is has probably been informed by Looney Tunes often more than the Bible. This is not like God and the devil dueling it out like two opposing forces. That's Persian dualism. That is not the biblical Jesus. That's not the biblical God. The biblical God is one God 
Overall, Satan's a chained enemy. He's not a worthy opponent. He's a defeated foe. Let me uh, poke a sacred cow of Christendom, if I may. Uh, probably everyone's favorite verse. Um, some are going to hate me right now, I know it, but I've got to do it. Jeremiah 29.11. We love to put this on shirts and coffee cups and doilies. It says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We know this one, right? Most people radically misunderstand this verse, though. What we need to, to see is that this verse actually occurs in a context. Go figure. We, it needs to be understood within its context. I can take a newspaper, cut it up, and write a ransom note. People do this with the Bible a lot. I'll take a verse from here, a verse from here, a verse from here, make it say... No, it doesn't say that. It's married to a context. When you take a look at the context of this verse... God has just said that he's raised up a Babylonian army to take them into captivity for 70 years. I know the plans I have for, know the plans of the Lord. Yeah, look at the context. It's actually in the midst of a really horrendous trial. There is a promise God has towards us, but it's accomplished in ways that we don't like. Because God is not trying to make us happy or healthy or wealthy. He's trying to make us holy. The way he makes us holy is through trial. We can rejoice, like James says, in trial. We can count it all joy in trial because God's not surprised by them. Because God's not wasting it. For those who are Christ, God is growing Christ's character in us in the middle of trial. He's using them. He's accomplishing it. He's purposing our trial. He has a purpose in our trial meant to shrink our view of our circumstances and enlarge our view of God. It's, it's meant to drive us back from the temporal to the eternal. It's meant to blow our minds with a vision of God and his greatness. It's meant to produce in us the character of Christ. How many, just show of hands, how many want more of the character of Christ? Some, not all, okay. Thanks for your honesty. If we want to become more like Jesus, uh, it's going to happen through trial. Same way, you won't get buff without going to the gym. We will not grow in Christ's character without going through trial. That's why he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, all of them. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness big word we're going to unpack in a second and this steadfastness needs to have its full effect that you may be perfect we're going to unpack that word and complete lacking in nothing now this word steadfastness this is the product of trial some translations you might be reading from might say perseverance might say endurance the original greek word uh, is about staying power kind of consistency determination under pressure or as eugene peterson says um, a, a long obedience in the same direction. Some of us, we've been around Christianity for a long time, but we failed to grow because we lacked this endurance, this steadfastness. Anytime pastor says something that chaps you a little, you're gone. Anytime somebody 
bothers you, you're gone. Anything time somebody says something you don't like, you have a hard relationship, you're gone. And many are immature because they don't have steadfastness. But it's absolutely essential to the Christian life. I want to show you this, James, or pardon me, uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter echoes, and 1 Peter, James in a lot of ways, very much so um, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. It says this, his divine, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Very important to note. Everything that pertains to this life and growing in godliness has been given to us. It's unlocked already. Just note that. It's unlocked through our knowledge of him who's called us to what? His own glory and excellence. He's unlocked everything for us and then he's called us to become like him. And he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now take a look at what it says. So because of all this, make every effort. So he's unlocked it. So make every effort because his promises are going to meet our effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith, your belief with virtue, action. That's what this whole book is about, faith and action. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. And, and this is progressive. He's saying, okay, do this. Once you get this, get this, then get this. So faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control. That self-control played out over and over and over on repeat is steadfastness. And then note, the steadfastness becomes what? Godliness. Steadfastness is self-control on repeat. And the reason that both James and Peter tell us to grow in this is because it's the building block for godliness. Now look again at verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. I gotta, this, this is going to come up over and over in the book seven times, so we need to understand the word. Perfect is referring to wholeness, not absolute perfection. We already read it. James said if anyone says has sin or says they don't have sin, he's a liar. The truth isn't in him. We will never arrive at sinless perfection. That's not what this is talking about. This is referring to a life that is fully integrated with what it is we say we believe. Our beliefs have fully informed our actions. We're, we live our lives consistent with our values and beliefs. But most of us, myself included, in so many, so many areas, we're living fractured, disconnected, as Calvin and Hobbes fans discombobulated with what we say we believe. The book of James is so good. It's one big, fat challenge to live out what it is we say we believe. It's a series of shots to the soloplexes meant to challenge us and grow us and strengthen us. God allows trials because he wants our wholeness. He wants our perfection. He wants an integrated life, a life that is integrated with what we say we believe. He desires this for us. He allows trials because of this. Now, we're starting this church with this book because this is what the Christian life is about. And I know for many, it is not the Christian life. This is not what it has been. 
I'm excited because this book is going to challenge us. Some of us this morning, we need to be reminded that trials have a purpose in our spiritual lives. We need to be challenged with this idea that God is just going to instantaneously transform us. Some of us are waiting out for the day Jesus redeems us or we die to be transformed and we've, we've missed the point that God's actually wanting to transform us now. I'm going to read something from A.W. Tozer, an amazing quote. Um, band's going to come up. Listen to, this, listen to this quote. He said this, the fallow, so the unplanted field is smug. It's content and it's protected from the shock of the agitation of the plow. Such a field as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark for the crow and the blue jay. It's safe and it's undisturbed. It sprawls lazily in tranquility. It never, never feels the motions of mounting life, nor does it see the wonders of bursting seed, the beauty of ripening grain, fruit it can never know because it's afraid of the plow. In direct opposition to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence is open to admit the plow, the peace that has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change and it's been upset, turned over, bruised and broken. But its rewards come upon the hard labor. The seed shoots up in the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the world above. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-new service of creation. New things are born, grown, matured. Now hear this. Nature's wonder follow the plow. Nature's wonder follow the plow. We want the character of God. It follows the plow. Follows the plow. I'm going to put two questions up on the screen for us to contemplate. Where in our life right now might God be trying to grow us? Secondly, how have we been treating the trials that God sent to accomplish that? Sometimes trials feel like they're only stealing joy, but we need to see that they're also giving it. It might take things from us, but it's freeing us to receive something greater. Trials are allowed to make us like Jesus. You just put up on the screen for me Hebrews 12 2 it says this church we are to look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God we have joy set before us as well the end of our trial is joy we're gonna come forward if you're a Christian this is open to you come forward take communion Take the bread, take the wine. As you remember, Jesus' body and blood shed for you. Remember what it accomplished, joy. And rejoice because your trial has in front of it joy as well.